Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. The equation goes like this. Mississippi is home of the blues, and native son B.B. King was its sovereign. But B.B., or Riley B. as he started life, was more than just the king of the blues. His voice and stage presence won him lasting fame, but it was the way he played the electric guitar that transformed all of modern popular music. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today is Daniel Divisay, whose book sets the standard as the biography of B.B. King. Your book teases out um, the most likely places that Riley B. King was at the most likely times and and who he was most likely with. There had been so much written about his early life, uh, and and B.B. had had written uh, an autobiography. Why did you feel the need to sort of pull it all together, and and what what was his early life as best you can tell? You know— uh, I, I felt that B.B. King was one of these cases of somebody who's super, super famous. I mean, there are very few more famous Americans than him. Right. But I didn't feel like I was sure that I or anybody knew for sure why he was so famous. Yes, he's the king of the blues, but for what? What did he do exactly? I mean, I, I know he's amazing and great, but I wanted to sort of explore the underpinnings of his fame. If I could draw an analogy to Louis Armstrong, um, I didn't really find out until I watched the Ken Burns jazz documentary that what Louis Armstrong did, the reason that he's the greatest jazz artist just about of them all, is that he sort of created a role for the the instrument, uh, the musical instrument as a, as a sort of solo vehicle in jazz, created the whole idea of stepping forward from the combo and taking an extended solo and imp- improvising, which became basically the meat and the bread and butter, the meat and drink of, uh, of jazz music. So now that I know that, I, I better understand why he is so massively famous. I kind of felt like I wanted to do that with B.B. Uh, with King. I thought that I knew that he'd kind of created this guitar sound that was pervasive in the years I was growing up, in the years of my adulthood, really all the way up to the end of the century. But I didn't know it for sure, and that kind of freaked me out like I'd never read it anywhere. That's what B.B. King did. And I thought, well, that'd be cool to write a book saying, just connecting the dots, showing that he created this kind of beautiful vocal style of solo guitar that became almost universal over the last decades of the uh, last century. Yeah. Now, you asked about, you know, the geography kind of of his life, and it is, it was very, very daunting trying to do that. Um, I guess it's your classic Delta Blues story in as much as there's so much uncertainty about so many of the greatest blues artists, when they were born, where they were born. It's an enormous cast of characters that you introduce in the first 50 pages of the well, book. Just... I apologize to the dear reader for that. There's maybe there's too many of them, but it was a, it, there is a, there was a lot of, were a lot of people involved yeah. in his early life. Uh, <laughs> and here's what I think I know. And, and this will sound a little different from what anybody listening to this who really has studied his life, what what they might have read before. Uh, Charlie Sawyer did an enormous 
service in nailing down the vast majority of this right. with, with his 1980 book. Um, but we've even found out stuff since then. So uh, Riley King, Riley King was born in 1925 uh, outside of Itabina, which is a you know a very small city, and outside of a, a still smaller place called Berkeley, which is a little tiny village. And I went and visited. It's along the railroad tracks, and it's just a, a, a scattering of houses. Um, and he wasn't even there. He was uh, in a, in a shack, uh, a couple of miles from any kind of paved road, out in the middle of just about nowhere. Yeah. Um, on land that he remembered was owned by a, a white either landowner or or maybe a tenant uh, named O'Reilly. Uh, he lived there with his mother and his father for a few years, maybe four years, maybe five. During that time, a younger brother was born and then tragically died. Uh, so he lost his, his only sibling. And then around when he was five, which would be around maybe 1930, uh, Riley and his mother, B.B. and his mother, left the father, um, maybe because of his drinking, yeah. we're not really sure about that, and moved into the town of Berkeley, which is, again, barely a town. Right. And she uh, took up with another man. Uh, there was a new man in her life. They lived in a little, a little house in town. And we know this partly because uh, not long after, around 1930, 1931, um, they get a visitor and that is Booker White, yeah. who, who is BB's, I think, second cousin or cousin once removed once, or yeah. something. Uh, brilliant Delta slide blues guy. <laughs> older, right? He's older than BB. Right. He was probably a young man then. He was probably playing a gig in Itabina. Yeah. And he visits and he shows young Riley his guitar and, and Riley is like admiring it. I don't think he actually gave it to him, although some people have said that that was BB's first guitar. I don't think so. He probably handed it back. Yeah. He's five, you know. But it's a great story. But it's a great story. Yeah. And and then this part, nobody who listens to this will have ever heard before, unless you were at the luncheon an hour ago. <laughs> um, Riley King, at around age six, thereabouts, and his mother move. They leave Berkeley, leave the Delta altogether, yeah. and go north to Chickasaw County. Chickasaw County, um, and uh, uh, the area around Houston, yeah. H- not Houston, Texas, right. a place with which BB is later known, right. Houston, right. Mississippi. Uh, and the reason they went there is that that was the cradle of BB's mother's family. They were from there. Mm-hmm. And they sort of retreated to there because she was at that point, again, a, a kind of a single mother yeah. uh, with, with Riley and, and her grandmother. And they all sort of gathered there. And this I know because they all dutifully reported this uh, five years later on the 1940 census hmm. that the question says, where were you five years ago? They all said Chickasaw, Houston, yeah. Mississippi. Uh, including Riley, including Bibi. And there are other sources. There are people told uh, the, the great documentarian Jim Lauder, uh, Dollarhide, Jim yeah. Dollarhide, the late Jim Dollarhide, got interviews with people where they said Riley and his mother went to Houston, mm-hmm. to Chickasaw. Mm-hmm. So we know this happened. He was there for a few years. Nobody ever thinks of that place being any part of the B.B. King story. Right, right. But apparently it was. And he probably didn't barely remembered it. It would have all been a sort of a blur of family memories and, uh, you know, maybe disjointed from specific places. So after a couple couple years there, then they moved to Kilmichael. And Kilmichael is a known place in the B.B. King right. story. Um, and uh, they take up residence with a sort of a, 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 some sort of adjoining farms occupied by different white landowners. One is named Booth. One is named Cartledge. One is named Henderson. Uh, and 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 Riley and his family 
are sort of back and forth among these three different properties. Uh, but I, 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 Charlie Sawyer, who did great research on this, puts him primarily with the Henderson family uh, living on their property and working on their land for, I would say, the period from maybe around maybe 36 mm -hmm. up until uh, about 1940, 1941. Uh, Bibi's mother dies uh, uh, at the beginning of that span, actually. I would say right very shortly after Bibi uh, settles in Kilmichael, which is sort of just below the hill country. Uh, so around age 10, he is... Uh, left motherless, and he's basically fatherless because they've left the father. There. Right, and so then he lives with his grandmother for about four years, and then she dies. She dies around 1940, probably of tuberculosis. I believe the mother had died of uh, diabetes, untreated diabetes. And, and the story at that point for a lot of folks was that he lived alone at age 14. That's right. Yes, you're right. Um, BB himself. Remember, he's he's. He's conjuring up memories from a very long time ago, and he thought that he lived alone for a number of years. Uh, and Char Charlie Sawyer and he, I think, figured out together that it was actually uh, not – he wasn't entirely alone. He was living with his grandmother. He was living with the remnants of his mother's family. Right. Um, not entirely alone. But after his grandmother dies, um, he, 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 he does live – virtually alone. I think what actually happened, I, f I forgot to say this at our luncheon we had, yeah. but he actually, I think he lived with, with, with his uncle, his yeah. mother's older brother. And again, there's references to this. If you listen to uh, the, the, what the documentary maker Dollarhide got mm -hmm. from the surviving relatives, they say this. Mm -hmm. He was with Uncle William. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Uncle William. And so he's never entirely really alone. Right. But shortly after that, and we're now in about 1941, um, Bibi's father reappears in his life and comes and collects him and takes him in a pickup truck to Lexington, right. Lexington, Mississippi, to live with his new family. He's got a new wife who, mm -hmm. according to Bibi, looks is like the spitting image of his mother, which is a little freaky. Yeah, and three, I think, children, and they live together in this household. And and Riley doesn't like it. He it's it's the classic step stepchild's situation where he feels like the odd kid out. Right. And I think he only stayed there about a year. And then he gets on his bicycle, a fixed gear bicycle, yeah. I, I think, and pedals over the hills and far away and uh, yeah. pedals all the way back to kill Michael to resume his, his life there. An, an amazing part of the story there. Yeah. Um, so then let's see, he, he stays in he resumes his life in Kilmichael, but this I picture as being one of the first really happy times for him, at least by his own account, by, by Bibi's own account. He, he took up residence with the Cartledge family, and he described them over and over again to the end of his life as being very, very benevolent. Mm -hmm. um, it was a father and a mother and a, a little boy who was several years younger than, than Riley. Mm -hmm. By his own, again, his own account and by the account of the Cartledges, I, I interviewed one of the living members of that family. Um, he he had a, a a pretty happy, harmonious relationship with them. He lived in sort of an outbuilding on their land. He apparently joined them at the dinner table, which I am told would have been very, very unusual right. for a, 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 an African-American child in a sharecropping sort of situation with a white landowner to be breaking bread with them at dinner. Yeah. Um, so I don't think this is entirely, entirely a fairy tale to say that it was actually a pretty decent time for him. I think he was treated with some basic human dignity, uh, which is, uh, it's, it seems like the absolute minimum, but for that era, it was, I think, pretty, pretty good and maybe pretty rare. Um, and, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to praise this white family for just 
basic human kindness, but BB certainly did. And I yeah. think they do deserve a shout out for apparently making his life pretty happy. Yeah. And he, he received a salary. He actually bought his first guitar in the, at this time. Uh, he was earning, I think, $7.50 a week or something like that. And might, maybe it was maybe it was less than that. But anyway, he bought a guitar yeah. and, and then started playing the guitar. And he, he forms a gospel uh, ensemble with a few of his friends. Um, and, and during this time when he's living fairly happily in, um, uh, well, near Kilmichael, Mississippi, he has a couple of huge role models, huge influential father figure type men. Um, and this actually, these, these, these people were in his life before, but I'm only mentioning them now. One is his, his school teacher, Luther Henson, mm -hmm. uh, who lived to be about a hundred. And he taught the children in a one room schoolhouse, uh, segregated schoolhouse that they should feel, you know, proud of themselves, that they should feel self-confidence self and self-worth. Mm -hmm. And he taught them all about great heroes of, of black America um, and showed them probably clippings from the African-American press about famous black uh, Americans, people they weren't going to read about maybe in the in Genola newspapers, or I'm sorry, he was still in Kilmichael. Well, maybe not. There probably wasn't a newspaper yeah, in Kilmichael, right, right. but, uh, and really, really taught taught BB about the value of an education and of of, of it being a tool that he could use to uh, transcend um, the poverty of his life. Yeah. Because his life was a life of perpetual debt. Uh, that was that was the lot of the sharecropper. And then the other huge influence, the other huge role model was the pastor, um, Archie Fair. Archie Fair was a guitar slinging pastor who would play the guitar and sing and 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 worship. And BB was smitten with him, and even more smitten with his guitar. And he dreamed of one day becoming a guitar slinging pastor himself. And I think, if nothing else had happened, uh, he might BB might have eventually, you know, grown up to be a a, a reverend, a, a pastor, a minister, playing the guitar and leading a prayer. And I'm sure he would have been a great one. Yeah, from from an early age, it really seemed like Raleigh King was crazy about music and crazy about girls. Well, I, I think that Riley King's, um, his first real romantic uh, entanglements, his first real loves were a little later. But yes, uh, he writes in his memoir, which was published in 1996 with the collaboration of David Ritz, uh, that he was really, really, yes, really into girls. Uh, he he was describes himself as being sort of obsessed with them. Um, but in forty three, and this is where we get to the great romances of his life. In forty three, he he accepts an invitation from a cousin and moves to uh, Indianola, mm -hmm. which is the place that's sort of known as his as where he's from. That's he wasn't right. really from there, but. It's understandable. That's where the B.B. King Museum is. Yeah, that's right. where the museum is. That's kind of what he usually would later say was his hometown, Indianola. Right. He moves to Indianola. And there he, he uh, I, I think, has his first real love. Yeah. And he he, he describes her uh, and, and sort of uh, uh, as mysteriously as this, as he calls her Angel, but but he says it's not her real name. Yeah. Um this courtship is brief and tragic because it ends with evidently with Angel and her whole family being killed in a horrific collision, uh, like a car run over by a, a truck or something horrible. Um, and I'm, I'm certain this happened, but I could not find any reference to it, which could be either because 
so much in the chronology is so confusing. It could be that this young woman was somebody he actually courted back in Kilmichael where mm-hmm. there probably wasn't a newspaper, right? So that would make sense. Right. If it was later, which is what Riley remembered, if it was later when he was in Indianola, then the papers didn't cover it, um, which is a little surprising because one of the two Indianola papers, I don't remember if it's the Enterprise or the Toxin, one of them did cover the African-American community and did so pretty well. But that doesn't mean they might have missed it. It might have been out of town. It might have right. been like in another, it might have been in Winona or yeah. something. Uh, do, you, do you all say Winona or Winona? Winona. Win, it might have been yeah. in Winona or, or just somewhere out of town. Yeah. But in any event, I found no reference to it, no record of it, but clearly it happened and it devastated him. Yeah. So um, as he's still kind of reeling from that, um, not much long after that, another young woman enters his life. Her name is Martha. And uh, she, I think her family's from Eupora. Uh, and anyway, they, they start courting and he falls for her hard and they become a couple and he follows all the ancient rules of courtship and is a, a gentlemanly, you know, uh, courtier. I don't know what you call somebody who courts. Um, and there's some wonderful stories that he tells that I put in the book about them dating and getting to know each other. And then, but fairly quickly after they start seeing each other, um, they decided to marry, and, and I think what pushed them into marriage pretty quickly was that he was uh, about to be drafted, and I think that was a common thing back then. It was the war was raging, and people were being sucked up into it, and so they wanted to get married before he left for basic training. Yeah. And I think we're now talking about, I think it was 43, it might have been 44, it's in the book, but you know, right in the middle of World War II. And, and his life could have been much different. He um, was working as a tractor driver at that time and was able to get an occupational deferment. Yeah. In Indianola, he, um, uh, Riley goes to work for another fairly benevolent landowner. His name is Johnson Barrett. He's a, he's Jewish, which is interesting, mm. um, in itself. And by Riley's account was not racist. Did, didn't have a racist bone in his body. Um, and would and would sort of push back against people who were, which is probably again very significant at that era in that part of the country. Um, and again, I'm not trying to paint him as some kind of saint. I, I think that the way he behaved toward toward Riley shows simple human kindness and and basic dignity, and is all we should all be all the time. But the fact that he was treated reasonably well during that time is good. It's, yeah. it's it, it was good worked out better for him because we want him to succeed. He's our hero. You right, know, he's, right. He's the brilliant BB King. We right. don't want him to be working for some racist jerk. You know, some horrible person. Right. Um, and I can't remember now what. Oh yes, so BB had worked himself up, worked his way up to tractor driver, which is a well-paying job. Yeah. And that was the job his father had. BB's father, Albert King, who I picture as kind of an alpha male. Mm-hmm provider, breadwinner, head mm-hmm. of household, mm-hmm. extraordinaire. Albert was a tractor driver and that was the highest paying job uh, short of, well, it was the highest paying job that a black employee could dream of having in this kind of agrarian system. Right. Um, the only exception to this would be there was a black employee of Johnson Barrett, the not racist landowner right. who was actually, I think the foreman or I, I remember the job, but it was like the top job. Yeah basically the deputy to the landowner. Yeah. And apparently it was extremely unusual that a black man was given that job. Right. But Booker Baggett, I think his name was, had that job and, and was well paid. And the white merchants in town gave him all sorts of crap because they couldn't believe that he was speaking for the, the landowner, but he was. And yeah. Johnson Barrett said, you want to talk to me, you talk to him. You know? And, but, but BB has 
become a tractor driver, which, as you say, I mean, really, that's that's top of the heap for the, the best he could hope for. Yeah. He got there pretty early in life, but he was driven nonetheless toward music. Yeah. Um, he, throughout uh, his 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 life from from the day that he first set foot in Archie Fair's congregation and saw him play the guitar, he was smitten with music. Um, he, he, he had a guitar probably from around age 12 or 13. Uh, there was, there's three or four different stories of when he got his first right. guitar. Maybe Booker uh, White gave him one, maybe not. Maybe his uncle William gave him one. Right. Uh, a, a relative re- recalled that happening. Yeah. And that would have been when BB was maybe nine or ten years old, but maybe he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he's living with the Cartledge family in Kilmichael, BB actually buys a guitar, so he had one at some point. And maybe started out with the diddly bow, a homemade. Yeah, he said yeah. that he did. You're right. Um, and so by the time he's living in uh, Indianola, BB is 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 a very uh, active, uh, obsessive guitar player. And he forms, um, I think it's actually his second musical group. It's another gospel group. And right. I think they're called the famous St. John's Gospel Singers. Right. I think that's what they were called. Uh, and they tour all around the area around Indianola, maybe, I'm guessing, maybe as far as you could get in an hour or two, yeah. playing churches, playing events, uh, probably all segregated events uh, in the black community. And they were getting to be v- pretty good and pretty uh, renowned. And they were getting, I think, Paid and at least with collections. Yeah. And BB wanted to leave town and go out on tour and be like the Soul Stirrers, you know, the group that had yeah. Sam, Sam Cooke eventually as their front person. The others didn't want to. They all had families and probably less well paying jobs yeah. than Riley had, and they didn't have his ambitions. So he actually, Riley started playing on the street corners and he's playing gospel and not really getting anywhere. And then, you know, famously one day or one night or whatever, one Sunday, he's playing and the guy says, well, what about, could you play some blues? And so Riley plays some blues. And then suddenly the guy plunks a, a dime or a nickel into his cap or whatever. And BB realizes, oh, the blues pays yeah, <laughs> a lot yeah. better than the gospel. And that's a turning point for him. Yeah. At that point, uh, he is not BB King, the guitarist that we all know. Is he playing chords and supporting the song um as he sings i mean i guess that's something else too that uh you, you know a lot of folks are are sort of delighted to think that bb king couldn't sing and play at the same time <laughs> well that that's a i think a misapprehension which i can explain later but when he was playing acoustic guitar on the street corner in indianola as a teenager um he was as close to a delta blues guy as he was ever going to be yeah. But the irony, I guess, is that he wasn't a huge fan of the Delta Blues. His biggest influence by his own account at that age in life uh, was probably Blind Lemon Jefferson, who was from Texas Mm -hmm. and was, I think, the first big, famous, you know, sort of acoustic country blues man in the the 20s. And the reason Riley knew Blind Lemon's work is that he sold a ton of records and so Phoebe's aunt Mima, who I think was actually his great aunt Mima, had some of those. And so Riley heard them. And he he was aware of Charlie Patton, mm-hmm. the first great Delta Blues guy, because Charlie Patton, too, sold some actual records right. before the crash, right. before the stock market crash. But it's sort of interesting that B.B. King was not somebody who had followed all of, you know, Robert Johnson, apparently didn't much, didn't think very much of Robert yeah, Johnson, right. didn't really know of Skip James or... Um, 
any of the other sort of great uh, Sun House, you know, the other great Delta Blues artist, Tommy Johnson and so forth. Although he knew, of course, knew Booker Washington, I'm sorry, Booker Washington White, Booker White, his cousin. But I don't think he was into that music that much. And even when he's playing on the street corner, I picture him as playing rhythm and blues songs, which are not blues songs, rhythm and blues songs that he heard on the radio. Right. And he's already kind of thinking of a much broader palette of music yeah. than the simple Delta blues. Yeah. Um, so he goes on and, uh, from there, what's his next step musically? Yeah. Well, the gospel combo actually goes on the radio in Greenwood at uh, WGRM, I think yeah. it's called. Uh, I was just there a few days ago, but he, again, the bandmates don't want to do anything. So Riley decides he's going to do something. He's already playing on the street corners. The bandmates don't like it because they don't like him playing blues songs, mm -hmm. which is not gospel, and kind of two-timing them, I guess, by playing on his own and making all this pocket change. He's thinking of going to Memphis, yeah. which is, I guess, as big of a destination as he can probably imagine at that age. Yeah. The um, capital of North Mississippi. Yeah, and, and, and the regional provincial capital of blues and music generally. And the opportunity knocks uh, on this day when the engine knocks on his tractor mm -hmm. and it smashes into the sort of undercarriage of the, you know how the stuff is like up on stilts and yeah. because of the low lying land and all that. So um, it breaks off. I, I don't the exhaust know. pipe. Yeah, I, the I exhaust don't understand pipe. tractors. Yeah. <laughs> the exhaust pipe breaks off. Yeah. And he is horrified and, and scared out of his wits, but he's also seeing opportunity. He splits. Yeah. He doesn't want to face his, his boss. He splits from his wife and from his job and goes to Mississippi on a grocery truck. Doesn't leave his wife, but leaves his wife behind. Yeah. I, he probably left a <laughs> note for her, I'm guessing. Uh, I'll call, you know. And I think that was around 1946, I think. it's in, Again, it's in my book. I, I, I came as close as I could as of pinpointing, but it was shortly after the end of the war. Yeah. And I don't even think I got to saying that the reason he doesn't actually go and fight is because he had this essential farm job. And so right. he basically goes through basic training and then gets sent right back to, uh, to Indianola. Yeah. But he goes so he winds up not going overseas, not, not going to fight, and also not quite getting in enough time with the government to be classified as a veteran. So he, he does most of, of basic, but doesn't get sent off to war. Yeah, I think he even said once that he'd done like one day short of mm -hmm. whatever is the minimum to 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 uh, qualify for all the benefits, which could have included schooling. Right. And he later on felt terrible that he'd not been able to go to college, maybe on the GI Bill, um, because he felt, again, like his school teacher, Luther Henson, said, education is the one thing that can deliver you from right. this poverty that you're in. Um, so but, instead of war, he goes to Memphis. He goes to Memphis on a grocery truck. And it is an abortive trip. He stays for a number of months with his cousin Booker, uh, Booker White, and he he sort of shadows him and maybe apprent apprentices himself to yeah. Booker and watches him perform all over the place. And B.B. himself is is getting, I think, I picture him getting better and better at the guitar. I think yeah. at one point Booker actually buys a new guitar for him that's an amplified guitar, an electric guitar. Uh, but I don't think that I don't think that they ever perform together. I think B.B. was basically polishing his his own act and he didn't feel like he was good enough. Yeah. So after a number of months, uh, Riley, he's still Riley, he returns to Indianola to pay off the debt that he owes to Johnson Barrett, which I think is $500, yeah. which is if he's earning, I don't know how much, but it was probably two years worth of, you know, maybe half of his salary. Yeah. 
to pay it off. So that so he has two blank years there up until I think I think the end of forty eight, yeah. where he's just working off this debt for this exhaust pipe, and he's back with Martha, but he's right. not happy. He he's he's feeling thwarted. Yeah. He wants to go back to Memphis. And something that will um, reappear, but but we don't have to necessarily get into right now is they don't have children either. That's right. Um, all told, Riley was with Martha for eight years of marriage, and they had no children. Um, and this this is important because later on, uh, some controversy comes up over whether Bibi, in fact, was the father of these fifteen children he claimed as his own, but. You know, it is a fact that Martha and he had no children, and then Martha had several children with a subsequent marriage to a different man. Right. So eventually, um, he he still has the urge and and wants to head back to the big city. Yeah, I I I, I picture him biding his time, practicing. You know, the ten thousand hours that right that great geniuses like BB get in, and just pray, playing and playing and playing. I've got quotes from the people who lived with him, his cousin and his cousin's wife. Del, I think Dulcia. Uh, who I think is still alive in Indianola, hmm. she bore witness that man would play and play and play and play. He was just playing the guitar at all Through hours, yeah. getting better and better and better at it. And But he has to wait until he's paid off this debt. And then he leaves for, for good. And this time I think he and Martha are, you know, okay, well, you'll come join me, you know. Yeah. And he goes back on a different grocery truck. <laughs> and I think that he arrives in Memphis. And I, for, forgive me, folks, for leaving Mississippi, but right. he arrives in Memphis, I would say, Right around the beginning, or right around March of uh, 1949, and the reason I say this is he shows up in the radio listings in the Commercial Appeal at the, in, in early April. I checked every single issue, and he first appears in those radio listings at the beginning of April 1949. Yeah, we, and and by by BB's own account, it all went very quickly. Yeah, he shows up in town, and like that very morning, he goes into KWEM. The, the the West Memphis station in Arkansas where uh, Sonny Boy Williamson and Howlin' Wolf mm-hmm. are the DJs, the big DJs. Yeah. And he goes on to Sonny Boy's show and talks his way on the air and plays a song and gets a very good reception. And he then instantly the same day gets a gig at a club in West Memphis. And the deal is, okay, well, that's fine, but you got to get on the radio now. So again, in, in Riley's telling, the very next day, and this is just 24 hours later, he takes a bus into, into Memphis and walks like three miles to WDIA, right. which station he probably would have known. It was, I'm sure Booker would have told him about it. It was the first station, radio station with all black talent. And I interviewed a woman who's still alive, who, uh, who actually she, she passed away finally. Um, and Bob Merritt, the uh, commercial appeal, did a very nice obit. Um, she told me that he appeared at the front desk and he was all wet because it had been raining and just said he wanted to go on the air. And they summoned the, the station manager, a Bert Ferguson. And Bert takes Riley back and they talk and he plays and really, really impresses them. And they sort of hash a deal whereby Riley King will go on the air probably 15 minutes at a time daily. And why don't we call you BB? So he was Riley. Perhaps because there was a connection with the landowner. Uh, all, all, I think also that that was a family name. I, th- these Again, there's two competing versions. Yeah. I'd like to think that it was because that name Riley was in his family. I, yeah. think, I think it was an uncle named, or yeah, an uncle named Riley. So he's Riley, and he's Riley B. 
But what does the B stand for? For nothing. It, it was just just an ornamental letter. And Bert Ferguson apparently was the one who said, you know, we'll, we'll call you BB. It sounded good. Yeah. And so I do not believe the story is that he was first called Blues Boy or the singing Blues Boy yeah. and that they then shortened that to BB. I'm sure he might have later been called those things, but he started out as BB. Yeah. Just BB. So all of a sudden he has this huge platform. And yeah. even though he's not getting paid anything by WDIA, he uh, is able to let folks know where he's going to be playing. He's performing all over the place. And life's pretty good for him for a little while. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a book tour. Yeah. Um, he's, he's playing for free. Um, he uses the, the platform of the radio to advertise his shows. He is getting paid for the shows. Yeah. He plays the shows. And it's this cycle. And he's, and he's also advertising a, a, a dubious tonic called a Hadacol, is it? Or, or Pepticon? Pe- Pe- Pepticon. Pepticon. was the competing yeah. brand that Sonny Boy, I think, was hawking. Um, and then he's selling, and all of it is cross-promotional, cross-promotional all the way around. And he builds a name for himself. And within a matter of just a few months, because I think in the summer of 49, so this is just a few months later, he records his first four sides, his first four songs, which a label called Bullet with two T's out of, uh, not not I like the Steve McQueen movie, right. B-U-L-L-E-T-T, I think it was called, out of, uh, out of uh, Nashville. And those are his first songs. One of them is called Miss Martha King. So at this point, he is immensely driven. He is talented. He has some sounds in his head, but he hasn't necessarily played with a lot of other musicians. And it it takes um, the efforts of Robert Lockwood Jr. to really sort of bring B.B. King, the guitar player, into line with what other blues musicians and, and trained musicians are doing. Yeah, um, there's a long, proud tradition of solo folk guitarists ignoring time signatures. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob Dylan, in his first recordings, doesn't hew to uh, four four notes per beat right. and twelve bars per whatever stanza. He just keeps playing the chord until he wants to change it. Yeah, and that was what BB was doing. What, 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, for these first recordings, I think it's the first time that, at least in the blues idiom, he's playing with other musicians. Yeah. And those those songs are kind of a train wreck. I write about this on in the book that you could tell that 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 he is not following the changes, the chord changes, and these other musicians know how to do that. He just doesn't know how to play with other musicians. Um, other than this gospel uh, group, which is now long in his past, and that was a vocal group. Uh, Robert Lockwood was an extremely talented guitar guy who could play in a lot of different styles, and I think he'd played with Sonny Boy, right? Um, and and B.B. becomes popular enough that he's making good money and playing all over the region. And Lockwood joins B.B. as basically a second guitarist. He's an extremely overqualified rhythm guitarist, basically. And he, uh, Lockwood being in, in this ensemble that's coming together allows frees up B.B. to play solos and to become the solo guitarist. I, and I have to think that that having a blues ensemble with two guitars in it two prominent guitars at a time when you might not have had any guitar was very, very unusual. And this creates, you know, think of the different rock and roll bands over the years that have had the two guitar attack that, that (laughs) heard it first there, my friends. Um, and BB in between, this is when the magic happens because I think over the period of time between the summer of 49, when these very rudimentary singles are recorded and the next summer of 1950, when BB emerges basically fully formed, he, teaches himself to play in the style for which he would later be known. And I'll tell you what that style is. Yeah. Um, 
Beebe had picked up on a, a, a long but kind of sparsely populated tradition of guitarists playing single string solos. I know that sounds goofy. Everybody does that. But no, not in the 20s, not right. in the 30s. Nobody was doing it. Guitars were strummed in the distant background of the back bench of the orchestra. And they were acoustic guitars. Yeah. They weren't amplified until I think the end of the 30s, if I remember correctly. So Elani Johnson, who's a, who's a brilliant jazz blues guitarist, I think had played the violin. Yeah. And he just borrows that skill set and transfers it to the guitar. And so he's almost like a Louis Armstrong character in guitar in a mm-hmm. way. Uh, wow, I can play single string solos on the mm-hmm. guitar too. Lo and behold. And that's in the 20s. Um, and that's very important because people uh, a lot of times w- w- think that Charlie Christian might have been the first person. And he's brilliant too. But this is like 10 years later. He's Charlie Christian is playing an amplified, I believe, yeah. uh, electric guitar in the Benny Goodman ensemble brilliantly and sort of establishes the guitar as a solo instrument in jazz, another kind of like Armstrong-esque accomplishment. Right. But these are like the only people doing this, you know. Uh, and there's Django Reinhardt in Belgium. And then and then T-Bone Walker um, appears on the scene, I think during the war, that era, maybe before the war, as a, and this is a rare thing, a guitarist fronting a rhythm and blues ensemble. Uh, the rhythm and blues radio of the 30s and 40s had like zero guitars. Um, the band leaders were singers or they were pianists or uh, I think uh, Louis Jordan, you know, played like yeah. a golden saxophone, but there weren't guitarists running bands. But and, T-Bone is the is an electric guitar player and he's, and he's the rare exception. Right. He's an electric guitarist fronting a rhythm and blues ensemble and he scores a, a huge hit with uh, Stormy Monday, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's BB's you know, that's, that's, and so BB, that's his huge influence is T-Bone. And what BB does, and this is, I think this is his Lewis Jordan moment, mm-hmm. is that he takes that guitar solo tradition and, and, and moves it to the next level. What he does is to create a new sound on the guitar, which is basically an extension of his own singing voice. And I don't think any of those other brilliant, brilliant musicians had done that. I think that's what BB did. Um, he, he even personifies his guitar as Lucille. The name Lucille would not appear in print until 1967, but Lucille existed all the way at the beginning. And it was this personification of his, I, he was, he heard the voice, his own voice being sort of transferred over to the guitar. He would stop singing and Lucille would start. And that is the guitar sound that, that you know and love from your Pink Floyd records and your Carlos Santana records, and your Buddy Guy records, and your Otis Rush records. That's BB. That's BB's sound. And um, everybody loves the story of Lucille, and and most folks know the the story of of the fire and Lucille. But uh, not only has Lucille been any number of Gibson semi-hollows, but Lucille in those early years was sometimes a solid body fender, was sometimes, <laughs> right. uh, I mean, you know, really jumped all over the place. There was no real connection with Lucille as a guitar. It was his guitar. And and let me say Whatever again, his the, guitar the, happened the, to be at the, time. the word Lucille does not appear in print at any time in the 1950s. I couldn't find it anywhere or in the first half of the 1960s. Uh, he might've called his guitar, he did call his guitars Lucille. I asked uh, gosh, Floyd Newman, who was, I think was, I, I asked two different musicians who were playing with him in 1950 mm-hmm. and they, and I, I think one or both of them remembered Lucille being a thing, Yeah, but 
Yeah, it was whatever guitar Phoebe happened to have. His guitars were getting stolen all the time, and yeah. he had not settled on one brand. Um, you know, he yeah, he, I think he's got a Fender Jaguar in a number of press photos, and I think that was a go-to guitar in some of the early years. I know this sounds horrible to anybody who's used to the 335, right. the, that beautiful Gibson hollow body, but he didn't adopt that as, as, as sort of his chosen instrument until maybe, I'm thinking almost like a decade later. And and did the look of it play a part? I mean, you know, early on, B.B. King decided he was going to dress up, not dress down. He was going to play with more musicians rather than fewer musicians. And the the guitar just looked so good on it. <laughs> yeah. B.B. Um, King always, this is this is further distancing himself from the the Delta Blues masters. He He would talk disdainfully of a guy with like a corn cob pipe or whatever and overalls and a and a tin cup full of whiskey or whatever he wanted the blues dressed up in a jacket and tie he he drew this inspiration from all of the rhythm and blues bands whose songs were on the charts and on the radio these were formal bands with tuxedos and charts yeah. and horns and yeah. arrangements and you know panache and and that was what bb wanted to look like and and what he wanted to sound like as well the book is great in lots of ways one of the ways that it's really entertaining is you know when you trace the story of bb king the career of bb king you're going to bump into just about every famous name that's out there and there's a great quote in it uh where charlie parker the the, the great saxophonist great jazz saxophonist bird says to him we're all blues players. It's just that we hear blues in different ways. Yeah, and, and Miles Davis was a huge fan, um, and B.B. was a huge fan of Miles, and they would catch each other's shows whenever they could. Um, you know, Miles said, uh, I remember at one point, I don't know if this is in the book, but just that, that only people like B.B. could really play the guitar with the sort of cadence and rhythm and just intuitive feeling that that miles wanted on his records yeah you know he loved bb's playing and bb loved miles's playing what um what about the labels and the people that he chose to work with uh in the early years in particular on his records uh he, he did not go with the big labels to start out with D did that give him some freedom to do things that might not have happened otherwise did it hold him back because there weren't resources there yeah, and, and actually, you're making me wonder whether any of the uh, rhythm and blues icons of that era were on major labels. I, I, I know that eventually a lot of them were, you know, eventually Ray Charles was, Fats Domino was. Yeah. But I think when B.B. started out, it was kind of a choice among chess records in Chicago. Uh, there was Duke Records, uh, Don Roby's operation out of Houston, and then the label B.B. went with, which was modern records, um, Bihari Brothers out of Los Angeles. Yeah. And these were quote-unquote race labels that would make, I think, almost exclusively, if not exclusively, uh, records by black artists in the rhythm and blues and blues uh, genres. And B.B. did actually record a few of his early singles for Sam Phillips. But Sam Phillips, I think at that era, at in that era at least, was selling them to Chess or to the Biharis. Uh, Holland Wolf was in that same exchange. I think Holland Wolf at one point was on both modern and chess records. And I, I think for, I won't speak for the rest of those artists or, you know, for Barry Gordy or whomever. Uh, I think that in BB's case um, that he, I know that he was passionate about the, the civil rights movement. He did an enormous amount of work behind the scenes. 
um, I think playing in benefits at fundraisers, raising money for the cause, but it was all very private and very modest. Bibi was a humble man, a very modest man. There was never a single article written about that I could ever find about any of this work, but I know he did it because yeah. numerous people told me so. He doesn't really go political until near the end of the 60s with a very political song called Why I Sing the Blues, which has imagery of slavery and bondage and servitude. It's a very, very powerful, angry song, but it doesn't come out until I think around 68 or 69. I think by which time B.B. felt that his audience could take it, was up, was was ready for it. Um, I'm guessing that before then, it was partly just to not alienate his fan base that that he felt that he wasn't going to go there, you know, to do openly political stuff. And I, I want to say again that there, there aren't a whole lot of overt political protest songs out of soul and rhythm and blues right. um, until pretty late, I think, in that decade. I might be missing one, but uh, the ones we talked about that were from the middle of the 60s were very um, measured, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're more like spirituals, but with a civil rights theme. It's hard to explain this, but the really political stuff was more from uh, the white and black folk singers who were who were just overtly political. You know? That's right. So B.B. King um, wins acclaim really early on. Um, I mean... He's beloved as a singer. He's pretty quickly beloved as a guitar player. He sticks around so long. Um, his audience changes. Yeah. Um, you know, we live in such, we lived especially in the past in such a segregated society. And B.B. Uh, was a participant in a music industry that was just divided right down the middle. Um, he played almost ex- 100% in black clubs and you know white people weren't allowed in the black clubs nor black people in the white clubs and this was throughout the six the 50s and into the 60s and for the first half of the 60s um few were the people who were white people who got to see bb play or even knew about him or even wanted to see him play there was just such a wall uh, separating the black and white music scenes so what happens and this is a this is a like a three or four part story but uh, by the end of the 50s and early in, uh, into 1960, there, there are these the new generation of black blues guitarists who are all wonderful, and all of them basically are picking up on what B.B. is doing. Yeah. Um, they include Albert King, who's not his brother, by the way. Um, and Unless you ask Albert. Sun Seals <laughs> and Otis Rush and... and uh, uh, um, oh, the, the, one, the famous one who's got the club named after him. Oh, Buddy Guy. Buddy, Buddy Guy. Guy sorry, who's actually still alive and yeah. is the sort of reigning king now. Um, all, all of them, and Buddy especially, paid homage to B.B. and said, this was the original guy. We're, we're just carrying on in his tradition. Right. So by the early 60s, their stuff is being shipped over to Britain. And in England, there's all these musicians. And think of all your favorite guitarists from The Who and The Kinks and The Stones and The Yardbirds. They'd all gone from skiffle, which is mm-hmm. kind of like jug band, yeah. through this sort of traditional jazz revival, which is kind of like Dixieland, but all British version, to where they come out the other side with a with a very passionate interest in blues. Right. And it starts out that they're interested in sort of acoustic country blues. And then gradually, as the 60s progress, they become interested in electric blues. And so like Muddy Waters goes to Britain. Uh, playing an electric guitar and freaks them all out because they were expecting acoustic music. And then Muddy comes back a few years later and brings his acoustic and then they're all expecting electric and he freaks them out again. 
So a bunch of the, 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 a generation of the greatest guitarists in England, and the greatest of them, of course, was Jimi Hendrix, who wasn't really British, but they all learned to play basically like B.B. King. I know this is an oversimplification, but he, B.B., is the one who created this style of solo electric guitar that sounds like a human voice, and that is what the British guitarists were all doing. Yeah. The only ones who weren't were the small handful, like Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, who played like a... Elmore James with a slide guitar, mm -hmm. which is equally melodic, but it's a different thing. Uh, that's a different sort of wing of the blues, which is Muddy Waters, Elmore James, those folks, and uh, Dwayne Allman, you know. So the Brits, the Brits invade America, and this would be probably the second British invasion. It's yeah. like 66, 67, bringing this revolutionary guitar sound, which is B.B. King's sound, with them. And at the time that they invade, I can't stress this enough. Put on a record that you own that's, that was made in 64 or 65 by an American band or even 66. There is no B.B. King guitar. It's it's a lot of it's inept. And 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 what lead guitar there is, think of like early George Harrison. It's not inept. It's wonderful, but it's it's very clipped, very it's rhythmic, rhythmic-y sort of rockabilly, ding, da, ding, da, ding, da, ding, that right. kind of stuff. Right. Or Chuck Berry's style, which is a different style. It's rhythm guitar as lead. Uh, Chuck Berry was basically filling in with his guitar for a horn section that he heard in his head. And that's what becomes Keith Richards' style. Yeah. But the dominant guitar style from the Woodstock era on to the end of the century was the B.B. King guitar style, which is imported with great passion by all these white British guitarists into America. And they then join these wonderfully talented black guitarists who'd been doing it for several years, but, but without really white audiences right. paying any attention. And suddenly... Everybody wants to play like B.B. King. Things changed for him um, right around that time when he recorded his version of The Thrill is Gone. Yeah. B.B. Um, had been carrying around that song in his head for a long time. Um, there's a, I can't remember now who wrote it, but it was somebody else's song. And it had been done as a, in a very different, much simpler version. B.B. Uh, uh, reimagined it. Um, with a uh, in a different key and with a, a very kind of almost like the sort of Otis Redding style sort mm -hmm. of soul arrangement. He added another chord, a, a flatted sixth chord, so it's not just a three chord song. And Bill Simzik is at the controls, who who was this young producer who really wanted to bring BB up to date uh, in the rock and blues and soul sort of idiom, and that song. Uh, just, it's a beautiful song and it just, I think they all knew immediately that it was a hit and uh, Simzik added strings to it, which gives it some suspense. Um, but yeah, that, but that was, that song was one of, I would argue three or four specific different things, all of which conspired to put him over the top. Um, when I say over the top, I mean, as a, an artist, everybody in the United States knew, not yeah. just, not just his black fans, but right. everyone in the country. Uh, the one, one, the first would be this triumphal gig that he does at the Fillmore in San Francisco in 1967, which is just about his first time performing for white people. And that is a huge breakthrough gig where suddenly he meets, literally just meets all these fans who know his sound and know how much he's uh, done for, for, for the pop music that they love. And it's this wonderful, worshipful moment and he breaks down in tears. And there's also, oh, he goes on Sullivan, he goes on Carson, 
And in, I think in the end of 69, he goes on tour with the Stones, which is a big deal because yeah. the 1969 Rolling Stones tour was an epic tour. It was yeah. a huge tour. And B.B. was a big part of that. And it won him a whole new audience, uh, lots and lots of young, mostly white, probably mostly male people, all of whom wanted to learn the guitar and, and play like him. B.B. King is married twice, um, famously uh, lover of women across the, the, the country and the world, um, and eventually the stories um, start making the rounds about all of his children. Uh, you are very clear in your book uh, and referred to them from the very beginning as his adoptive children. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, even, even um, well, let me back up. I am a journalist, and I tried to make a journalistic case uh, to sort of illustrate why it is that everybody I interviewed who's close to BB, inner circle people, they all believe that the children that he has are not bio his biological children. So why do they all think that? Well, I, I, I drilled down into this topic and found out that, you know, the exhibit A is that he had two marriages, each was eight years long, and those two marriages spanning 16 years yielded no biological children. And both of those women had children with other partners, okay? So that's one thing. Yeah. His doctor, uh, Dr. Darren Brimhall, told me that B.B. Uh, had told him that he had had a, a, a venereal disease around the time he was in the service uh, that had probably rendered him, uh, what's the term, uh, not able to have children. Yeah. Um, and that furthermore, uh, this, this other piece was in Charlie Sawyer's book 40 years ago, so this is not new. Um, that B.B. and Sue, his second wife, went to a fertility doctor at very early in their marriage, why can't we have children? Yeah. And the doctor figured out that that B.B. was to, at fault, basically, he wasn't at fault, but that it was because of him that they couldn't have children, that he he was not capable of having children, his sperm count was, count was way too low. Yeah. So I don't, I think, ever say in the book he, that he can or can't or anything definitive, but it seems unlikely to me given what I know um, that, that, that those, uh, 15 children, uh, were biologically his. And the reason this matters to me really as his biographer is that it gets to a fundamental trait of B.B. King. Um, you know, these fundaments of his personality. Remember we were talking about, he lost his whole family. Yeah. His little brother died. His mother died. His grandmother died. He was ripped away from his father who then went on and had another family. So he felt like he was alone in the world. And I would argue that he spent his entire adult life sort of assembling a family that he could love and, 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 and cherish and give money to and send their grandkids to college and do all of that. I, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think I love that he had this big family that he basically built, built up. And he always said that he would never question any paternity claim that, that reached his doorstep. If, if they said it was my kid, then it's my kid. Yeah. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. I know that toward the end of his life, especially, there was some acrimony, there was some conflict and infighting among the children. But um, yeah, I just think that gets to a fundamental trait of Beebe's, which was that he just yearned to have a family. And he, and he ended up having a big family. You write um, with, with great insight and, and really technical knowledge about some of the innovations of B.B. King's guitar playing. Are you a musician? Uh, well, I'm not a good guitarist. Um, I've played the guitar since college, uh, never very well. But I was always the person in all the bands I was in who kind of could figure out 
what the chords were in a song, what the harmony should be, although I could never sing it because my voice is too low, but I always know what it should be. Um, I was I was classically trained. I almost became a classical musician. I played the piano a long time when I was young and uh, played in youth orchestras and such. And so I'm very much a music geek. And I'd always wanted to write a music book. I very, very much feel like a frustrated music writer. I was telling this to Bob Mirror, who was a very successful music writer at the yeah. Memphis paper. I was a frustrated music writer, and this is my first music book. I wrote many, many music articles over the years as a journalist, but never did I have the music beat, and I kind of always wished I did. The book is King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Daniel, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin. And thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi. <laughs>